The scripture reading today is taken from Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have sent my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear, and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning, Christ City, uh, Kitsilano. My name is Jonathan, and I'm one of the elders here. It's my joy to bring you God's word this morning. Uh, let me pray. Father God, it is good to be here. It is good to be in your presence, to worship you. Father, I pray that now as I uh, speak and minister from your word, that you would give me concision of speech, that you would give me the joy of your spirit and that your word would have its intended effect that it would both convict and encourage us and it would point us to you jesus the king of kings we pray these things in jesus name amen well this morning we are in the psalms if you have your bibles take your bible and turn it and flip it right to the middle this week we begin our summer series in the psalms and this is one of my favorite books. I love the Psalms. And I love them because in the Psalms we see this deep expression of each writer as they responded to God in their particular circumstances. It is simultaneously three things. It is an anthology of the human experience. It is a hymn book of worship. And it is a prophetic book pointing us to Jesus Christ. Brother, are you longing? There's a word for you in the Psalms. Sister, are you mourning this morning? There's a word for you in the Psalms. Are you feeling lonely? Are you feeling remorseful? There is a word for you in the Psalms. Are you joyful? There's a word for you in the Psalms. There's a word for every human being in every age in the Psalms. You see, in the Psalms, it's the heartfelt cries of trust and worship as the psalmists turn from the anguish of their human experience toward worshiping God, toward exalting God. Praying through the Psalms has been one of my favorite spiritual disciplines because they are so rich in expression. It's easy to map the cries of my heart to the cries of the psalmists. The psalmists help us to express our deepest cries. And yet the psalmists also lead us to worship. 
they lead us to the one who is able to answer those cries. Finally, in the Psalms are the beautiful lines of prophecy, so encouraging to the Christian who sees them fulfilled in Jesus Christ. We're reminded of the nearness of Christ as we read the words that point us to him. And we look in gratitude as we see the grand narrative of God accomplished through the words in the psalm. So it is with very great excitement that I get to kick us off in this new series. As Herman read for us today, today we will be looking at Psalm 2, one of the royal psalms that form the beginning of the Psalter. If Psalm 1 is a call to a personal commitment to God, Psalm 2 is one of corporate commitment. Both Psalm 1 and Psalm 2, they seek to establish something very fundamental. That is that God's law and God's kingship are necessary for true human flourishing. In fact, we see in Psalm 2, we see in Psalm 2, a rebellion at the level of nations against God's law, against God's kingship. He shows us, God shows us through the psalmist that rebellion is always and ultimately against God himself. In other words, it's sin. And such rebellion is futile. We're shown the contrast between the futility of the dominion of men versus the flourishing of the dominion of God's Son. Now, of course, in the immediate context, the psalm talks about flourishing life under the restored dominion of a good human king. The Bible tells of the loss of our human dominion because of our sinful rebellion against God and the hope of a return to a life under a a good human king where justice and righteousness are upheld and where oppression and injustice no longer reign. This hope depends on the arrival of a good king. And so in some sense, Psalm 2 is this kind of meta-psalm. It's this kind of overarching psalm about this sort of kingship. And so at one level, it's about David. The New Testament writers actually considered Psalm 2 to be written by David. It looks back to the promise that God made to David about David's rule. In times when Israel was in exile, the people of God looked at the song with a hopeful confidence that one day God's rule would be restored. And yet at another level, it looks forward to the fulfillment of these promises to a future son of David, when humankind will be restored to true flourishing as they joyfully submit to the rule of the King of Kings. And now because this is kind of an overarching psalm about kingship, we can actually apply this to our lives. You know, while we certainly might look at the word nations as in a political context, you know, my thoughts go to the Queen's Platinum Jubilee, or maybe even you might think uh, of the autocratic power in Russia. The Bible actually portrays for us, New Testament Christians, the contrast between the kingdoms of this world and the kingdom of heaven. You might remember the Sermon on the Mount. And these kingdoms are less about our political and territorial alignments, but rather the alignments of our hearts. So the question is this, do we live in futile rebellion against the kingship of God, or do we live in honorable submission to him? 
That's the question that we're going to ask today as we read through this. My aim this morning is to show you the futility of living in rebellion against the Son and to exhort you to find true wisdom in serving the Son. I have three points this morning. My outline is this. Number one, the futility of rebellion. The futility of rebellion. Number two, the supremacy of God's Son. The supremacy of God's Son. And third, we'll look at the wisdom of serving the Son. You ready? So let's dive in. The futility of rebellion. Imagine for a moment that there's this summit of nations. And at the summit of nations, there's this one powerful superpower and a bunch of other nations. And this one superpower, this one leader, because of their political, economic, technological, military might, is kind of ready to impose his will upon the rest. And I bet you in today's hot political climate, that's not that's not particularly hard to imagine, right? And as these meetings go, there begins this concerted coalition of the other nations as they seek to figure out how they might pull the rug from under the superpower to be finally free of its influence. Well, verse 2 of our psalm describes such a setting. The kings of the non-Israelite nations have set themselves against the Lord and against his anointed representative. In fact, they collude together with all the other rulers and together they say, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. This is the cry for freedom. They saw the dominance of Israel and by extension the rule of the Lord as one that impedes against their freedoms. They were protesting against the Israelite ideology and understanding that God, their God, Yahweh, is the creator of all the earth and that the Israelites were God's chosen people. Now, there are a couple of interesting observations about this. First, notice that in the collusion, in this setting themselves against the Lord, there is much commotion. The psalmist says that the nations are raging and protesting loudly against the Lord. Now, this is important because often those who are in opposition to the Lord are pretty loud. It doesn't mean that they are right. And second, the rebellion is premeditated. It says here that they plotted, they set themselves against the Lord and his anointed. It wasn't a case of whoops. Now, of course, God is the creator of all the earth. And the Israelites were God's chosen nation. And thus, while they may be plotting against the nation of Israel in the immediate context, the text actually makes clear that they are actually in opposition to God himself. And third, the psalmist here says that this rebellion was in vain. It's futile. It's highlighted by this rhetorical question. This question of complete astonishment. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? You know, there's perhaps nothing more frustrating than than working hard at something to find out that it was in vain. I know it really frustrates me. And I would venture that it frustrates you too. 
We hate to do things in vain. It's perhaps why Paul speaks so pointedly in 1 Corinthians 15 about this heart dynamic. And the mental picture I have of this futility, I don't know if you guys have this, but is, is this ridiculous race that's common in the American, in American state fairs of a tractor pull. Have you guys ever been to a tractor pull? At a tractor pull, there's these muscle cars and beefed up trucks where people spend years and months prepping this car so that they can pull this giant weight down the track. And it's really funny to watch because months of preparation as these mechanics and engineers pour work into modifying and fine-tuning these particular big beasts and they shine up the engines and all that. And then they start and they blow these plumes of black smoke and then the gasket blows and nothing moves. It's completely in vain. <laughs> Why do the nations rage and peoples plot in vain? Well, verse 4 expands on the words in vain. And in this verse, we're given the reasons of why it is futile to rage against the Lord. It's clear in verse 4 that God is not unaware of our rebellion, that he's, he's not particularly concerned with the collusion of nations against him, concerned as in worry that it might upseat him. The psalmist's words put things into right perspective. God is described as one who sits in the heavens. This is not something to describe the distance between God and us. It is more to talk about and emphasize the secure place that he has on his throne. He is seated on his throne. And it is in vain that we rebel because his seat is secure. It's not going anywhere. He's so confident, in fact, in his authority that he notes his strength, that he laughs and he scorns and he holds the people who rebel in derision. Now, I must admit that in our current political context, this picture of strong men or even strong men, uh, straw men being uh, of an enthroned king ruling superior over rebels, it does not sit well with many. Notwithstanding the fact that many strong men in our world have evil intentions. And the mere failure of some in recent times seems to undermine this psalmist point. So rather than conjure up some modern-day equivalent, let me offer you another example. You see, we find such passages difficult to swallow in the postmodern world, right? Because truth to the postmodern seems very relative. But even in our very subjective culture, we do have things that people understand to be objectively true. For example, we universally understand the law of gravity. We understand the law of gravity to be true. We know as a fact that if I take this book and I drop it, it's going to accelerate at a speed of 9.8 meters per second, and it's going to fall to the ground with a giant thud. And it would be futile for me and you to try to take this book and to try to hold it up in the air and throw it up in the air and expect it to stay in the air. 
You see, we don't question these so-called laws of the universe. And yet when it comes to the authority of God, we do. And the rightful question to ask is why? In the same way the psalmist asks the question why in the beginning of Psalm 2, we can ask that of ourselves. Why do we rebel against the Lord? When the facts of God's rule and God's kingdom are established, rebellion against him seems completely irrational. And yet we do it anyway. We can see the echoes of how we rebel in this text as well. For who in our midst has not cried out with similar fervor and rage for freedom? Is that not what we do when we want to impose our order on the world instead of seeing the world according to God's ordained order? Certainly it's not wrong to desire freedom. After all, Christ died for freedom. But we must discern what type of freedom we seek. Do we desire the freedom to do anything we want? To, or do we desire the freedom or do we desire the freedom from sin so that we are free to love others? Sometimes we describe the type of freedom that we sinfully want. Really, it's just a mask for the mantra that we all learn as two-year-olds, right? It's this. I think it's up on the screen. I want what I want when I want it. I want what I want when I want it. We don't need to look very far to find these examples. Consider the areas of sexual or gender identity or the issue of abortion, just to name a few. You see, when we buy into the world's way of seeking ourselves and our satisfaction above everything else, we become the nations in our hearts once again. We functionally reject what Christ has done for us in bringing us into the kingdom of God. So this brings us to our second point, the supremacy of God's Son. Well, in verses 5 through 6, the Lord rebels, uh, rebukes them, sorry. The Lord rebukes them. Says this, Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. God promises judgment upon them. But notice that the judgment is not quite what we expect. You see, we expect the psalmist to say in his wrath that he extinguishes them. We expect the psalmist to say that God exacts his justice immediately upon those who rebel. And indeed, often in our self-righteousness and our impatience, we so desire justice that we impose our timing on it as well. In the blindness to our own rebellion, we see everyone else's rebellion, and we expect God to zap them in his rebuke. But instead, the rebuke takes the simple form of a declaration. Look at me with, with me at verse 6 again. He says, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, that's Jerusalem, my holy hill. 
verses 7 through 9 expand on this kingship. The king takes center stage in the narrative in these verses, and he reminds the readers of the decree and covenant that God made with David. In the Old Testament context, this declaration of king referred directly to the Jerusalem dynasty of Davidic kings, a line that had a special relationship with Yahweh. What was unique about the Davidic kingship was that his authority was derived directly from Yahweh. It was not a king that the people had elected. Rather, it was explicitly a king line that God established and established forever. So close was this relationship between God and his king that God uses the sonship language. Four nations knew this. They knew that they, uh, they knew that God had this covenant relationship with Israel. And in times when it seemed that the voices of the non-Israelites nations were louder, when it seemed that there was no hope, God's people remembered this covenant. Verse 7, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. No doubt this would have reminded them of the Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel chapter 7. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. And indeed, God did fulfill this promise. David's throne is restored. You see, thousands of years later, God would fulfill this promise of the enduring Davidic line with another son of David, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus, the son of David. Jesus, the Messiah. God would send his only begotten son, Jesus. And Jesus would inaugurate a new kingdom, one who would continue the Davidic line and one who would establish God's reign and rule forever. And amazingly, this new rule would include both Jews and Gentiles. Any who believed upon Jesus as their Lord and Savior would be included. And we, the church, those who believe, are included in this new kingdom. But the weapons of this new kingdom would not be swords and clubs, but it would be love. And Jesus the Messiah would be the first to demonstrate the ultimate portrayal of that love for us. Romans 5.8, But God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You see, Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Philippians 2 reminds us of this. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so, my friends, the rebuke is simply the declarative statement that Jesus is king. 
Jesus is king. I want us to notice a few observations about this response. First, it's incredibly confident. Those who are confident in their authority and power need not demonstrate that with a raw show of power. God merely needs to reassert the objective truth. And we can learn from this. You might remember Brad talked about this last week, that we operate on borrowed authority. Hebrews 4.12 reminds us that the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit of joints and marrow, and of discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. We only need to state the truth in order to refute the many voices of rebellion. This has several implications as well. We would do well, for instance, to remember functionally who God actually is, that he is God. There is no one above him. He created everything from nothing. And those whom he appoints to be kings on earth, to be his vice-regent, are so. That was evident in David and ultimately in Jesus. This means that Jesus is king. God is sovereign, despite circumstances that may seem otherwise. We must be confident in this. We also would do well to learn how to minister the word of God. Well, walking alongside one another in love by speaking the word of God and simply allowing it to penetrate because it has authority to do so. But there's another angle to this confidence. Notice the connection between verse 8 and the mission of the church. Who is to be God's appointed means for the kingdom of God to advance now? You see, God is fulfilling the prophecy in verse 8 through you, the church of Jesus Christ. Matthew 28 reminds us, And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of this age. And again in Acts 1, 6-8, So when they had come together, they asked him, Jesus, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? And he said to them, It is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. And so because of this, we, Church of Jesus Christ, can be confident in our mission. The kingdom will advance because we bear the authority of the king, of Jesus the king. So confidence is one thing that we can notice about this rebuke. Notice secondly that the rebuke is also abundantly gracious and patient. If indeed there is but one true king, it would not be wise to question his authority, right? But even in his warning that he offers in Psalm 2, 
God is merciful and gracious. He's slow to anger. He's abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And furthermore, he is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. The third thing to notice about this rebuke is that it is firm. Verse 9 reminds us of that. That the ultimate consequences of continued rebellion against God and his anointed will result in judgment. The inevitability of judgment for rebellion. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. And so this reminds us that we must never take God's grace for granted. We must never be lulled into thinking that things will simply continue as they are. Just as one day justice and righteousness will be upheld, well, justice and righteousness will be upheld. It will be enforced. Peter reminds us in 2 Peter that scoffers will come in the last days, that they will follow their own sinful desires. They will say, where is this promise of his coming? Where is this promise of his judgment? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were since the beginning of creation. But they deliberately overlooked this fact that the heavens existed long ago and that the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God and that by means of these, the world, and then these that the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. And so, brothers and sisters, we would be wise to submit. David exhorted the nations to submit before the wrath of the great king came and took effect, before it led him to conquer them and smite them. The leaders of these nations would be wise to bow in submission, not only to David, but more so to the king behind him in heaven. And likewise, my plea with you this morning is this. Submit to the king. Submit to Jesus before it is too late. And that is our third point. The wisdom of serving the son. Verses 10 through 12. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned. O rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son that is to honor him, lest he be angry and you perish in his way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Now, in Davidic times, this was a clear message to the four nations that surrounded Israel. But what's interesting is that over time, this psalm, Psalm 2, became increasingly messianic. It was prophetic, especially in light of times when Israel was in exile. It looked forward to this ultimate fulfillment of, of, this, uh, of this psalm, the ultimate fulfillment of the throne of David in Jesus the Messiah. Now, before you chastise me for, for thinking about this Old Testament text this way, that's exactly how the New Testament writers thought about it. 
In Acts 4, 24-26, Peter and John pray the beginning part of Psalm 2, referencing Jesus as the anointed and the people of the city, the Gentiles, as those gathered against him. Moreover, Paul and Barnabas also reference Psalm 2 in Acts 13.33, clearly pointing out that the Son in Psalm 2 refers to Jesus. And in that light, the juxtaposition of verse 9 and verses 10 through 12 is very interesting. You see, we have on the one hand the reality of God's consequences in verse 9 for rebellion. And on the other, this clear arrow to Jesus the Messiah with a clear exhortation to submit. In the gospel, Jesus himself took on the punishment for our rebellion. He took on God's wrath so that we, those who believe, might be spared from it. And we are given his perfect righteousness instead. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And so as extreme as this wrath may seem, God in his love took it upon himself by sending his son, Jesus, to be the propitiation for our sin. He took our place, taking what we rightly deserved, and gave us his righteousness instead. And so God offers us a choice. We can choose to walk in the way of wisdom, kiss the Son, serve Him with fear, knowing that He is a sovereign, wise, and good King. Or we can choose to go the way of the fool. We can continue to rebel against Him. But be warned, your rebellion will be in vain. You will perish in the way for His wrath, is quickly kindled. There will be a day, just like the law of gravity is unchangeable, so will the justice of God. Let me close, friends. And so in the message of this psalm, particularly the ending exhortation, this psalm is about order. God designed for his creation to be rightly ordered. Submission to his Son not only means a decision for Christ once upon a time, it means a daily faith in the way that God has ordered things. That he is indeed sovereign over all. That he is wise. That he is good. Now, it's been said that there is one dominant message in the Psalter, in the Book of Psalms. That is this. God is the good king, and that, number two, life is difficult. And as we live life, we're tempted all the time to rebel against this reality by projecting the difficulties in our lives back onto the character of God. When we suffer and when we sin, we are tempted to say that either, well, he must not be God or he must not be fully good or he must not be really king or really wise. And we rage against this. 
And yet Psalm 2 reminds us that not only is this futile, it is patently false. You see, if even in our most evil intents, God uses it for good and his purposes, to what end do we rebel other than to incur his wrath upon us? To what end do we rebel? You see, his will prevails despite our evil intentions. We see that in the cross, despite man's most evil intentional act of rebellion by killing the Son of God, God's intent was to use it as his most glorious act of redemption. He is indeed king. And so he bids us to a better way. Faith in him. In every circumstance, we choose the way of wisdom when we submit to his lordship. In every circumstance, we submit to the one who has suffered alongside us. In every circumstance, we look to Jesus, the Son, the King, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Hebrews 12. The dominant message of the Psalter is this. God is the good king and life is difficult. But guess what? The life of wisdom, the life of faith is the life that lived in between these two realities. Let us pray. Father God, it is good to be reminded often that you are king, that you are sovereign, that you are wise, and that you are good. Father, would you forgive us for our rebellion and help us as we trust in you to proclaim with confidence and authority your rule, your kingship, your gospel to a watching world that does not know you. Would you help us to do this knowing that you are seated on your throne and that one day every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. We pray these things in the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit. Amen.